This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to be talking with a friend and now a, a, a colleague in some ways, Michael McCleary of Valmark. Uh, we're going to talk about some things we've collaborated on uh, for the ETFs. Uh, but Professor Siegel, let's get your first take on the markets here. We've had a, a busy earnings week, a lot of uh, sort of interesting reactions here as we, as we close the week. Uh, any latest thoughts on, on what's happening? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so let, let's just talk about the, the data today. Um, the, the PCE, the personal consumption expenditure deflator, we knew how that would come out once the CPI was moderate on, on target. What really caught my eye was a quarterly report called the Employment Cost Index, or ECI. Um, I remember Alan Greenspan saying that that was his favorite inflation indicator. Well, it spiked up to a quarter-over-quarter increase of 1.3%, which is a 25-year high, and I mean it could be higher, but that the data starts in 1996. So, um, uh uh, that really was way above expectations. Labor costs are really going up. Um, uh, uh, now, let's talk about next week. Next week, of course, we, we have the Fed on Wednesday. It's going to be very – they're not going to get any new data. Um, but um, it's going to be very interesting to hear the the, the tone – First of all, the the plan for for tapering, which I think will be in effect, but I I want to listen to the tone of um, of Jay Powell because uh, he may be getting an earful from many of his um, colleagues about uh, inflation because um, how it's it's all in the news right now. Um, the uh, on Friday, of course, we get the employment report, but more important than next week, we do get consumer and producer price indices and. And then, you know, by the, by the way, just this this month, we have, um, uh, we know, a seven-year high on gasoline prices. They're up 7% on the month alone. Uh, natural gas is up dramatically. Um, uh, and how the Fed reacts, again, it has been my thesis that the market is not prepared for a faster um, taper and a a significantly sooner rate increase um, and will experience bumps along the road. That being said, uh, you know, bonds are terrible. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, fixed income is terrible. Cash is right if you can time it because if you can get into cash and wait for these rates to go up and stock market to adjust, you know, you can get in a lower rate, but we know uh, how hard that is. I mean, the market could go up another 5%, 10% before it goes down 10%. So, again, you know, it's short-term timing. I think on a long-term basis, stocks are really still where you want to be in an inflationary environment. But um, it's not just inflation now. I mean, we, we see the shortages. I mean, everyone's reporting it now. I mean, we even saw Apple uh, be, uh, being affected for the first time by, by chip shortages. Uh, so um, inflation is down the road. And um, – reported inflation is down the road and actual inflation is down the road. And, um, you know, the Fed has got to be under a mandate to uh, care about that. On, on, on Apple, I could give an anecdote. I usually never buy the new phones right away, and I didn't go right away for the new phone, but I still try to get a new phone, actually. And it's, I just ordered one yesterday. It's going to be still three weeks away before I could get their new iPhone mm. 13. Um, no. You know, it, it's um, you know interesting on what the market is starting to price in. You sort of talked about the employment cost index. It seems like Amazon, which is you know reporting this morning or or, or just the, 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 it's reacting to its report. It 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 uh, 
that also being down on these employment cost pressures. You seem to see it yeah. be coming into into these earnings reports. Yeah. yeah I, I, well, and you know, Amazon outside of Walmart, uh, I mean, Amazon is the second biggest employer, private employer in the United States. Um, and um, uh, you know. If you got to get the workers, you got to get the workers. You got to pay up for the workers, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I've said that, I, you know, I, I think wages are going to rise about twenty percent. Of course, I think eventually prices are going to rise by twenty percent too. But uh, you know, on on the what we call the low skill set, um, you know, they're in command right now, and uh, they're going to get their wages. And uh, uh, I, I heard discussion that uh, their uh, Amazon Prime is going to have to raise its price. It will not be able to do deliveries like it's been doing at the rate that it's been doing. Uh, margins will be squeezed. But you take a look at restaurants, hiring new people, and, and you know up and down the entire uh, production line where employees are needed. So it's, it's, it's raw materials, it's employees, it's up and down the line. This is, again, uh, Jeremy, as we have you know, predicted for a year. It's coming a little later than I thought. I thought we'd see the burst more in the summer. Um, uh, I think the Delta virus uh, spread has uh, uh, kind of delayed it because there was a lot of soft spending as a result, and we didn't see the pressures right away. But now that the Delta virus now down 60%, at least on new cases, Confirmed cases, I always say confirmed because I think unconfirmed cases are usually much higher, but new confirmed cases are down uh, 60% from their peak and um, and headed down. And uh, that's a great sign, um, but it means more spending. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, those, those are the pressures. Again, real assets, uh, we see hikes in, 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 in dividends. Um, uh, of a number for even I think Exxon hiked its dividends, uh, which again the oil is being as challenged as they are. Um, uh, you know, f- again, uh, you know there may be some rocky periods in November, December as the, the market uh, readjusts to a Fed that that has to move faster to get a hold on it. Uh, oh, by the way, we should mention we did get the money supply last Tuesday, and it wasn't that encouraging at all, actually. Um, uh, it sped up a little bit from the previous month. It is not to the levels of earlier this year, but it's increasing at a nine to ten percent rate, which is still twice the uh, long run average and not consistent with two um, percent inflation. So I mean, the Fed has got to get a hold on that, and the one way they'll get a hold on that is actually to raise interest rates to to stop the borrowing because people are borrowing. They say it's costless to borrow. You know, I buy goods today, and they're going to be 10 percent more a year from now. But I pay back at a one percent interest rate. So, you know, who cares? Um, only raising rates will shake out uh, some, you know, that sort of behavior. Maybe one final question, since we're talking about the sure. Fed for next week. The you you you're mentioning people need to adjust to this faster pace. Um, I, I saw earlier that maybe there's as much as as two hikes priced in for next year. Do you how, what do you see priced in versus where do you think the hikes actually might need to come in next year? Well, a lot of people think it's at the end of the year, um, and don't forget, we, one has to remember that. Um, you know, the Fed funds futures are not what we call unbiased. There's risk premiums in them in terms of estimating what it would be done. But, you know, my feeling is that as inflation gets worse, the pressure will be on the Fed and they're going to have to accelerate and you're going to see those short term rates go up. You may again, you may see a flattening of the curve. Everyone thinks inflation is steepening, but uh, not necessarily. Um, it might really fool a lot of people to see a flattening of the curve. People hedge on that long, and um, 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 but they expect the short. Two, don't forget, two increases at a quarter percent each is is a half a percent uh, on the Fed funds. So I mean, one one thinks, uh, how tight is that? Uh, you know, when you have three, four, five, six percent inflation, if you have a Fed funds rate between a half and and um, uh, three quarters percent. Um, so I, 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 you know, even that, you know, shouldn't scare anyone. Oh my God, you know, I'm getting half percent of my savings account. You know, should I do that or invest in a three percent yield stock? I mean, again, long run, you're, you're much better off in the latter. But it'll shake out all those people who, you know, say I get zero now. 
So I might as well buy anything speculative, you know, the meme stock craze, the crypto craze. Uh, and I'm not saying some of those are not well-founded, others are not. But when, when you can get, you know, alternative return, um, you think twice about some of those uh, speculations. Professor, well, thanks for giving us some time to, thought to start the show. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. We're going to turn the conversation to today's guest. We've got Michael McClary, Chief Investment Officer at Valmark Financial Group, uh, who oversees, uh, Michael, I think the number is around $15 billion in assets today, if I have that number right. Um, you know, you, you guys have been a pioneer in ETF portfolios. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate you having me today. So we're, we're going to talk about uh, a new index that you guys have created. We've sort of licensed that, that index for uh, one of our ETFs, the Wisdom Tree Target Range Fund. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that concept. Um, first, do you have any CIO for Valmark? You probably have a lot of thoughts on what you heard from Professor Siegel on the markets. Uh, any, any first reaction to the, the market dynamics that the professor laid out there? You know, I, I follow Dr. Siegel pretty closely, and... Um, you know, I think he's got some tremendous thoughts there. Um, in my role, you know, I manage predominantly global macro level strategic portfolios. So I, I'm in a situation where I have to take some of those concepts that, that Dr. Siegel is talking about. I have to look at the timelines that he's mentioning, you know, seeing if, you know, a move that happens in the next six months, how that has affect my long-term portfolios. Um, but we're really wrestling with a lot of the topics that he described. Um, you know, when you look at some of the things we're, we're building portfolios right now, um, you know, how does inflation play into the portfolio, um, both on the fixed income side as well as on the, on the equity side? Um, you know, he did not mention, you know, the, the value of the dollar. Managing international investments, you know, that plays into kind of how we're putting together portfolios, Jeremy, and, and that can be related to interest rates and inflation and all these other pieces and parts. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit today about kind of low interest rate environment, um, you know, overall. And, and, we have an allocation of fixed income and it's not a situation of where we're going completely out of fixed income. We're going to be in fixed income. It's how, to, how do we play that fixed income marketplace for, with some of our portfolios? So it's one thing to, you know, <laughs> I wrote it down. He said, bonds are terrible. Um, you know, we've got some solutions to, to maybe have some alternatives there, but I think a lot of investors like us will be in bonds to some degree. So we've got to, you know, see how we're going to play that, that space. Um, and then uh, two last comments that popped into my mind, one of which is, you know, he talked about what will the Fed do. Um, you know, I still went through that period of time, as a lot of us did, of the Fed put. And we wonder, you know, how not only would, will the Fed do to deal with inflation and all the other aspects of and their, their policy with tapering and interest rates, but what will happen if things start to react negatively? Um, will they go back to the, you know, the kind of Fed put where they want to do whatever that makes the market happy? And we saw that for years, um, and that affects strategies. Um, and then lastly, you know, valuations on large cap stocks specifically, you know, large cap U.S. stocks, um, and then, you know, across the board. You know, we look, Jeremy, at uh, different asset classes. We have pretty much seven to eight primary indexes we watch every single month. And we look at eight different valuation metrics on those indexes. And then we take them every month for the last, as long as we can go, sometimes 16, 20 years. And right now, large cap growth stocks are in about the 96th percentile and valuations compared to where they've been the last 16 years for that for that study. So how do you how do you do that? You know, how do you play that marketplace knowing that, uh, you know, valuations are a relatively poor predictor of short term results, but they're a relatively uh, favorable predictor of longer term results. So it impacts not only the risk of being in those positions, but also the, you know, the potential uh, long term return opportunity. So I touched on a lot of things Dr. Yeah. Siegel did just in that short, but, but you know, we're, we're thinking about all these things and how they play in, and interest yeah. rates and inflation are big parts of that. Yeah, I mean, I think what's, what's interesting for me, having been working with the doctor for 20 years, is, you know, he gets this reputation in the press and so social media, this permable, and, you know, a lot of that's well-founded. Stocks for long run, he's based on this long-term case on the equity risk premium, and and his, his 200 years of study on stocks versus bonds and, you know, offering compelling value. And, and I, he believes that. And, then you know, that's 75% of the, the time, you know, on a calendar year basis, that's the right call. He, you know, he's getting more nervous right now. You know, he's calling for more volatility because he does think that Fed put is, is, is going away. It's not, you know, and it's actually going to be a headwind that they're actually 
going to be getting tighter. So it's sort of interesting to hear, you know, and just point out for people, he's not always super bullish. He's actually pretty cautious and thinking there's going to be more volatility uh, coming. And that's going to tie into some of what you and I are going to talk about. Because we're there. that is a, the key conundrum of for people is the challenge of low bonds being forced to take out more equity risk. What do you do for those type of solutions? Uh, I think that's going to tease out some of what we're going to talk about. But let, let's let's talk to your background at Valmark for, for people who don't know your story, doesn't know Valmark's story. Who is Valmark? What do you do? Tell us a little bit about, about your firm. Well, Jeremy, I've been blessed to really be part of a tremendous organization uh, for my whole career. And, um, you know, I've got a great group of people um, that I work with, and we, we fortunately have really the best team we've ever had. And I've been here for, uh, for 19 years. Um, so I started relatively young. I, I started in the portfolio management process uh, a month after I turned 21 years old. And then I finished my master's when I was 22. Um, and I've been, uh, you know, really in the investment portfolio process for, for, you know, making investment decisions my whole career. Um, you know, we started uh, the history of Almark real quickly as, as we really started in the financial planning and, and insurance space. So we were doing a lot of estate planning, financial planning, working with CPAs, um, providing risk management products. And I was really involved in, in creating our investment management services, which I now run. So, with all that, I started with an investment program with about a million dollars. And, you know, like you said, it's grown pretty significantly. Uh, we're one of the largest and longest running, uh, specifically ETF strategists in the country. And, um, you know, that's given us a really good background. Where I sit now, though, which I really, really enjoy, is I work um, not only with – we have a distribution group of, of partners uh, that, are, that are all independent partners of our firm um, that are some of the top offices in the country – and they're out working with individual clients. So I'm getting to work with them and, and see what, you know, actual investors, you know, need for their portfolios. I'm not sitting in a, you know, behind a, a glass wall. Um, I get their feedback on what they're hearing in the markets, what, what investors are needing. You know, they're, I'm seeing we do, um, I think, over 10,000 financial plans a year here with our team of CET certified financial planners. So I get to see what they're running and what tools they're using. Um, and then I get to be very involved in the, in the ETF market, in the tools market, in that, you know, when I started in this business, Jeremy, there was 114 ETFs in the marketplace when I started in this business. And uh, I don't know how many we're at now, what, 5,000 globally or, or what have you. Uh, you and I have helped launch another one recently. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really just ex expounded, and we've been able to be part of a lot of that. So I, I, I sit in that, uh, that position where I'm looking at what, what's available to me in the marketplace, what are the tools available, and then on the other side, I get to see what do people actually need, want, and what's best for them. And I'm the one that's got to kind of make the decision in between those, you know, and putting those tools together, you know, with the investors. And, and uh, ultimately, what drives my decision process is two things. I, um, this is how I sleep at night. Number one, I want my investors to actually make money. I think there's a, and that sounds like a simple concept, but for, if there's some practitioners in the business, I think you're understanding what I'm saying. There are some things out there that have a lot of bells and whistles, but you get to the end and the client says, why did my portfolio grow? So we want our investors to actually make money. We understand that for our people to retire, for our charities to be able to provide meals and scholarships and what have you, they need to have money grow in equities over time. So that's number one. We want our investors to actually make money. And number two, I want to give my investors statistically the best chance for success. And I'm, you know, you and I get along very well, Jeremy, in many ways, but we're both very analytical and I'm always looking at what's statistically the best chance for success, you know, all the research we have and, and putting that into the decisions. So that's kind of my background and, 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 you know, what we're doing. I've got a tremendous team with me over 75 years of investment management experience on our team, uh, four primary portfolio managers. And, uh, you know, we just do a lot. We focus predominantly, Jeremy, on um, ETFs, which is our bread and butter and what I've been in since day one, but also derivatives. So we manage a futures overlay program and also an option strategy overlay so we, you know, ETFs, options, and futures, along with risk management, um, is kind of where we sit. Um, last, sorry, last one more thing I mentioned because I've got a lot of different roles, but um, we also are the largest manager, of, independent manager of ETF portfolios in the life insurance and annuity space. So I work with 21 different life insurance companies in helping to them to manage, you know, risk management products and investment solutions inside of their tools. So I get to see that piece as well. Um, so it's, it's fun. It keeps me busy. As you and I, you know, know each other for a long time, no. 
Yeah, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if I remember the very first time we met, but it was definitely over a decade ago, I would say. I mean, it's got to be sure. at least a decade ago. Um, and so I, we've been calling on, on Val Marquez, as, as like you said, one of the longest standing ETF model managers and, and trying to find interesting ways to, to collaborate. And, and, and a few years ago, uh, before the, right before the pandemic, we had a nice dinner and, uh, and, and sort of started brainstorming what are the unique things that we're going to solve for, that you can solve for in, in the markets today. Um, but but tell before we get get to that, tell a little bit more about your e, the ETF portfolios that you run. You guys call it the Tops ETF models, and in, in sort of the history there. Like when you're when you're building those, and and how do you think about the, that offering for people who are who are using? They're they're targeted for the life insurance, but also for the RA community. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Love to. Um, it would surprise you, but I've had this conversation before. <laughs> but it's uh, you know Tops is. is uh, really started, stands for the Optimized Portfolio System. Um, I'm in a fortunate role, Jeremy, to be able to do something I truly believe in. And I've also been in an independent role where I can put um, ideas to work, and we, we honestly can put ourselves in, this, in the same side as the investor to, to really go to work for them 100% and do the best job we can. So if you go back to the tenants that drive how I put portfolios together, giving them the opportunity to really make money over time and give them statistically the best chance for success, there are some basic tenants and tops, one of which is we believe in diversification. Obviously, we're not the people that invented that and so forth, but we really truly believe in the math behind risk return and correlation and, and how to put together portfolios and the diversification benefits of that. So we start out, um, you know, we're putting together a, a global portfolio mix, um, and our team has a, uh, a range and a target around every, every major asset class in our portfolio. So if we start with a 70-30 uh, stock to bond ratio inside of that 70% stock, we'll have a, a range for large cap US. We'll have a range for SMID cap. You know, we combine small mid. We'll have a range for, for different types of bonds. Um, and then what my team does is we meet each and every week and we will set the target inside those ranges. So let's say, for example, that our range for emerging markets is 5 to 15%. One of the things I want to make sure that my investors know is that they're not going to go to bed tonight with 7% emerging markets and wake up tomorrow with 80%. So we have that discipline to stay in that range, but we also feel we can add some value by adjusting that percentage inside of those. So it's the ranges and the targets is kind of how we start. Also, we consider ourselves strategic. So when we're making those changes, I say strategic is something that makes sense in the next 12 to 36 months, and tactical is something that makes sense in the next 12 to 36 days. So if you told me, hey, Michael, go after this trade, it's going to be hot for the next week, I'm not going to move you know, a billion dollars after that trade. We're going to look at how this plays out over the next 12 to 36 months and how we think that fits in. That does separate me a bit, frankly, in this ETF strategist, ETF portfolio realm. Um, but, uh, you know, there's some people that are still at the table that were at that original table 20 years ago with me. But sadly, um, I would say probably seven out of 10 of the people that were at that original table are not at the table anymore. And it's because they, they went, you know, into a significant tactical play and, and eventually that, that played out wrong for them. So our investors, you know, fortunately, like I said, being a chief investment officer is some degree, maybe the same uh, job security as being an NFL coach. So for me to be in this role for 20 years, <laughs> you know, uh, this is a type of strategy that makes a lot of sense, and, and we've kept our people happy. The next piece of that is when I decide I want to put 8% in large cap or whatever the number is, I could go buy actively managed portfolios and, and go that route. Um, we instead are index focused. And a big part of that has been all the way back to graduate school. I know you had a tremendous experience uh, with Dr. Siegel. I've had similar experiences in, in, in academics and so forth of learning and, and really, you know, I've, all I've done is finance my entire adult life. So, you know, I, I really enjoy this stuff and I could never get past the numbers. And now we've got 20 year numbers on the SPIVA reports, the S&P index first active reports. And Jeremy, what they do there, I know you're familiar, but for our listeners, they look at the returns of the indexes versus the active managers. And with the 20-year numbers, it doesn't matter if you're looking at large cap stocks, small cap stocks, international bonds, whatever. Largely, about 95% of the time, active managers have lost to their benchmark, lost to their index. So if I'm going to go out and give somebody statistically the best chance for success, I think that, that involves using indexes. Um, you know, one example that I've been using for my entire career is the flip the coin example. And I always say, if you flip the coin, you got a one out of two chance of getting heads. If you flip a coin twice, what are your chances of getting heads twice in a row? It's one out of two times one out of two. It's one out of four, right? You have a 25% chance marginally of getting heads twice in a row. 
But what are your chances of picking a large cap manager? They're one out of 10. What are your chances of picking a small cap manager? One out of 10. What are your chances of picking both? One out of 100. You know, and you start exponentially saying, what are your chances of putting together a portfolio, you know, of, of uh, highly active portf- underlying funds and beating an index-based portfolio? It becomes really, really difficult. And I think we've seen that um, in the numbers. Uh, we've seen about uh, $3 trillion come out of active management into indexes and ETFs in, in the last 10 years alone. So we use, the, we use indexes, and then if you're going to use indexes, you have to use index funds, but instead I believe in ETFs. I've been there since day one. Um, you know, I like to understand every aspect of what's going on. ETFs provide me full transparency. Um, I can know every single day what they're holding. Um, instead of actively managed mutual funds, which only publish their holdings once a quarter, um, I can know uh, exactly what the baskets are. I know the market makers. Um, been involved with trading of ETFs, you know, like I said, pretty much since day one. Um, another aspect of ETFs is the tax efficiency. Um, funny, we, when we first designed our program, we saw that it would be a big tax-efficient program, but we actually have more money in qualified assets than non-qualified because people like the other emirates. But, uh, um, uh, but we do have a significant tax efficiency in ETFs. You may have covered this before on your show and how that works, Jeremy, but um, you know, it, it can be as much as – I can't go into details, but it can be as much as 100 to 300 basis points a year in tax savings of an ETF versus having an active managed mutual fund in the same space um, and how the ETF uh, tax efficiency works. And then the cost. Um, when I started in this business, our weighted average underlying cost of a portfolio was about 45, 46 basis points. Um, now it's about nine to 10. So we've been advocates out there, you know, pushing for ETF cost uh, uh, reductions and, and, and really driving that. So that's really the story behind Tops, Jeremy, is the strategic portfolios. We have a significant discipline process. We've got a team with over 75 years of combined investment management experience. One of my guys, you know, manages about $40 billion. Um, you know, one of my other guys used to run equity, so a stable high retirement system. Um, you know, we've got a good team. We've got a CMT on the team who understands market technici- technicals. And we're looking at these portfolios each week. We're allocating among these asset classes, and then we're implementing them with ETS predominantly. So that's that's the basic yep. story of tops, and it's it's risk managed. We want to, you know, like our thing says, the optimized portfolio system. We're trying to optimize, get and pay you as much return as we can for each unit of risk you're taking. That's tops in a nutshell. We're talking with Michael McClary, the chief investment officer of Valmark. Um, Michael, before one of the things, uh, you know, it'd be good to you guys see, see oversee so many different portfolios. You mentioned all the different uh, CFPs and planning. What are some of the other mistakes? You talked about the active management uh, things. Any other mistakes that people commonly come to you that you, you try to address or, or, or other things that you see people going wrong with? Um, yes. <laughs> I know we've got a short yes. time on the call today, so uh, you know, I've got a lot of things to go through. The main thing that I see investors struggle with, Jeremy, is that there are literally thousands of inputs into the price of Amazon today. There are thousands of inputs into the price of the S&P 500. There are, you, know, every, you have to look at all these aspects and you have to weight things, you have to think through them, you have to get different opinions. So when an investor is out there trying to make their own decisions, oftentimes I see investors, number one, they make emotional decisions. I always tell people my portfolios do better than my own portfolio because I can go out there with, with that institutional mindset and make the best decisions for my investors. Man, is it hard to make those decisions when I'm thinking about how this affects my wife and my kids' college and all these different you know, aspects of my financial future. Um, so that's number one is, is that emotional part is really tough. Um, also, I often see investors make investment decisions based off of one variable. So they will say, okay, I'm going to um, get into uh, TIPS bonds because I think inflation is going to go up. That in itself could be a sound thought. Problem is, you got to look and see, okay, where's the tip spread at right now? Am I buying tips at a good price or not? Am I too late on that trade? You have to look and say, how is interest rates going to affect tips? How, you know, how are all these different pieces? How is global uh, uh, interest rates going to affect tips? Um, you know, what are, the, what are the trade-offs? Should I be in tips for corporates and different things to that degree? So oftentimes, those are the two main ones, though, Jeremy, is emotions you know, will, will be difficult for an investor. And number two they tend to make a decision based off one, maybe one and a half main things when our team is looking at hundreds. Yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. Uh, I guess, Michael, you guys have worked on developing a new index um, that sort of tops uh, 
target range type strategy. Uh, let's go through what got you first thinking about this. You mentioned you do a lot with derivatives and options and think about solving these unique complexities. A lot of experience in the insurance industry also that does some of these type of you know, protective type strategies. Maybe, maybe give us the background on, on what got you to launch this new index. So as we talked about in the first part of, of our session today, um, I'm in a situation where I'm building portfolios and I've got the responsibility to help people grow their assets. And, and we have to do that. We have to, we have to be able to get them returns over time. One of the difficult things is that people need equity returns. The average investor, if they do not get significant equity returns over their lifetime, they will never have enough money to retire. I, I recognize that for the average investor, you know, if they don't get equity returns, they're never going to be able to retire. So they need to do it. We're not billed as humans to take full equity risk. There's a few of us out there. There are people that jump off bridges and, and do, do those type of things and, and not airplanes. That's not me. I think the most people, you know, they want to have some risk management inside of a, a solution. So you got this equity exposure you need, but we're not built to, to take that. And I use the example of a, a mixed drink, okay? So there are some people that can take, you know, drink liquor straight, and but most people, they're going to they're gonna use a mixer. And for the last 40 years, the mixer has been bonds. And people have been using bonds. So bonds are there to cut down on the impact of drinking that liquor straight. You know, they're able to make it palatable. So you can have that drink and still, you know, enjoy that drink without that big hit of liquor taste, you know, that, that, that takes most of us. So bonds have been great. They've, they've, we've gone from high double-digit returns to, but we're down now to, you know, 1.57 on the 10-year treasury. That was a tremendous run. Um, if you were a bond manager during that time period, and there's a couple of ones we remembered, that, that's a you know you couldn't pick a better time to be in, have your career. But in trying to find real solutions for investors, I, I needed to look at some other choices other than using bonds as the mixer. So obviously, like I said, my background being in derivatives and risk management, you know, really made me think of that area. Another piece of it, along with with that issue is that equities themselves, as I mentioned earlier, are historically highly valued. So not only are bonds struggling as a mixer, but this, this thing that people need may, may end up hurting them. So you know, getting into equities and accepting that equity risk, may, that risk may be higher now than it was, obviously, if you bought uh, when the market was down last you know, March 2020. So those valuations make it difficult. Um, and you spoke about this, Jeremy, as well as Dr. Siegel, about maybe, you know, what, 75-25 is the new 60-40. So one way to do it is to say, okay, let's just, you know, let's just throw a little bit more liquor in there, you know, throw a little bit more. That is, that is a very viable solution. Um, but I wanted to look at something that would be an alternative to that, to have a similar risk measure to a 70-30 portfolio, for example. Um, also cut down on significant left tail risk, that those worst case scenarios, but enable people to have equity-like returns, really engage in those markets. And we've seen this type of investment be very successful in other areas of the marketplace. So structured notes are an area where structured notes developed predominantly by investment banks who have a lot of options experience, and they can be viable investments for people. Um, when you buy a structured note, however, you're buying the credit of that of that bank that's issued or whoever the credit is on that position. So it's kind of like buying a bond to some degree with a certain crediting rate. And also there's certain, you know, measures built into those. You're not buying the exact underlying options payoff. You're, there's some different pieces to create that structured product, which may reduce your return. So I didn't think that was exactly what I wanted to use in my portfolios. Um, one viable solution that's out there that I've learned a lot from is the insurance companies. The insurance companies, and, and working with insurance companies for a long time, insurance companies have something that I can't do with individual investments, and that is mortality. When you buy a life insurance contract, they spread out the risk of you dying among millions of people, and that's something that we can't do with just you know $100,000 in a bond market. So they do that also with different annuity products and so forth. They provide that mortality benefit. And the insurance companies have now used options. They, you know, because they have huge amounts of general accounts and, and, and lots of assets, they've created these these uh, option strategies inside of their products that do some different crediting methods. So I thought they've had a lot of innovation there. As 
if you haven't got it yet, you, I missed something here, but I'm an ETF guy as well. So I thought, how can we take all these things and give people a solution that enables them to have an experience like a 70-30, cut off those, those left tail events, enable them to participate in, in significant uh, bull markets in an ETF structure. So that's where we started, Jeremy, was really really that basic concept. And that's what I think you and I were talking about, you know, when, when we first mentioned this. Yeah. So, you know, options are one of those confusing things. Not every, you know, got to have special approval to trade options. They, they're, they're not as, you know, well traded uh, as stocks, although the Robinhood investors are now trading a lot of options or these meme, meme options. And, and so as you thought about building this index, talk about the different considerations you, 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 you thought about in building a new index and, and how you sort of started, started thinking about the different ways you could construct an option oriented investment strategy. Well, there's, there's some strategies out there that are called buffer strategies. And we've seen this um, with some other ETFs. We've seen this with some of the insurance company and structured note products. So if I was to offer you a 10% buffer strategy, using options, I could provide a payoff that if the market went from 100 to 90, you would not lose money, but you would lose anything beyond that 90. Um, those strategies may have benefit for people. Um, I think there are some people that will benefit from a buffer-type strategy. For me personally, I think it's a little counterintuitive for a lot of people. Um, you know, with medical insurance, what do we do? We pay deductibles, right? So we take the first X percentage, and then we protect against the major catastrophic losses. With car, you know, car insurance, we do the same thing. Um, so it didn't – I thought that there was a market for a lot of people to, instead of having a buffer, to create an explicit – floor, knowing that their investment over a certain period of time would not go below this value. And so that was the first aspect, Jeremy, is that I wanted to create that floor type experience for people. So, so that came into the play. Another thing that happens is to, with using options, um, in order to offset some of the cost, because nothing is for free, in order to offset some of the cost of uh, providing that floor, which in our our solution is a 15% floor over a one-year period is what, is what we do on an index. Um, you can offset some of the cost of that by selling a short option, or we, in our situation, a short call option, and that creates what we call a cap. Um, and so over certain periods of time, um, we've got a 15% cap in our, in our product. Um, but we also wanted to then say, you know what? If we start out in January and we put in place a 15% cap in the portfolio, there's some people that, you know, as an investor, I, I want to be able to do better than 15% in a year. So we'll talk about it probably in a minute, but we created a pretty dynamic restrike feature where we can consistently increase that cap over time. So those are some of the initial thoughts yeah. I put in, Jeremy, and then we can talk a little bit more about how it actually plays out. So so you just talked about the the, the cap, but let's, let's talk about the one-year period. So a lot of these... Um, option indexes and strategies, uh, they do have this sort of one-year look ahead, and then there's this path dependency and sequencing. But talk through um, the specifics. Well, great. Um, so there's different ways to provide option payoffs. <clears throat> one way to create a 15% floor would be to hold the underlying ETFs that are in our allocation and then also buy a put option. So you could buy, in my example I'm going to use today, Jeremy, let's just assume SPY which is the S&P, one larger S&P 500 ETFs, and when we use a reference ETF in our, in our holding, let's assume that SPY has a value of 100, just to make the math easy. Um, I could hold SPY at 100, and I could buy a put option at 85. And by doing that, I would create a similar 15% you know, floor payoff, and I would also have the opportunity to participate in the market going up. Instead of doing that, though, and to make things uh, trade a little bit better for us and, and also create some benefits for our investors, we decided instead to buy a long call option to create that 15% floor. So what we do is we buy a 15% in the money call option on each of the underlying four ETFs that are in our allocation. Um, so to go back to that example, if SPY is at 100, um, we do it right in the third week of January when options roll, we will buy a one year 15% in the money call on SPY at a strike price of about 85, okay? Now, by doing that, let's think through the math of how this works. Imagine we had, a, we had one share of SPY because we had $100. We had $100 to spend, okay? To buy that in the money call, you're going to spend about, 
let's say $15.50, just as an example, okay? So you, you hand your money over for an options premium for $15.50. Well, the other um, $84.50, you can just put in the bank account. You don't need that right now because you're going to get, with that $15.50, you're going to get uh, participation in the first 15% of loss, and you're going to get participation in the upside of the market with that, with that premium. Let's assume, Jeremy, that it's a year later, when this all plays out, that the price of SPY finishes at 70. Started at 100, we have a strike price at 85, and it finishes at 70. What's going to be the value of that long call, Jeremy? Zero. Yeah. Going to be zero. And so that we lost that premium. We lost 15%. If we were invested just in SPY, though, how much would we have lost? We'd have lost 30%. So that's how the floor works. Now, what do we have as well? We lost our 15% premium. We've got 85 cents sitting in the bank. We hold 85 cents in pretty much short-term treasuries. Okay, our index uses a three-month T-bill. So that's the way the floor is created, is that the option gives us exposure to the first 15% of loss, and it lets us participate in gains. That 85 cents or roughly 84 cents or whatever that we have in treasuries, that makes sure that we don't lose our money. Okay, that's, that's how the long call works. Yeah, that, that sort of illustration of the $15 of call premium and the $85 of cash you know, value, it really helps illustrate um, what can you lose. You can lose all the call premium when it goes down by more than that 15%. So I, I think that's a really you know, clear uh, illustration. Um, talk, and so now you, 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 just, you described wanting to not really wanting to cap the upside at that 15% out of the money uh, option. Uh, and sort of talked about a restrike. Maybe talk about what, for this index that you created. What tell, talk about that dynamic role? How do you you know with a lot of the other strategies that go out a year and they cap themselves at fifteen percent, so they don't go up more than the fifteen percent uh, that's out of the money. How are you managing to try to participate further than the fifteen percent? Well, sure. And, and Jeremy, you know, remember my pretense in building this. I wanted to create something that was similar to a seventy thirty fund. In doing that. Um, I wanted to take this 15% cap and I wanted to make sure that if I'm trying to recreate a moderate growth allocation, 15% is not going to do it because I've had years where my moderate growth portfolio does better than 15%. So I couldn't look my investors in the eye and say, and there's other products in the marketplace, some of the buffer strategy have an 8% one-year cap. That just wasn't going to get it done for me. So what we decided to do was do this restrike feature, which I'm not sure anybody in the marketplace is doing something similar um, what we do is let's go back to our example of SPY. We started at hundred. We had our spread at 85 and 115. Every single month, except for December and January, if the price of SPY finishes above the strike price of our short call, so it finishes above 115, we will restrike that part of our, our portfolio. And what that means, so let's say, for example, at the end of March, let's say that SPY finishes at 117. The downside of the strategy is that we will not get that 2% gain. We will get the first 15% for the first three months, but we will not get that 2% gain from 15% to 17. But then on April 1st, we will get rid of that original strategy. We call a call spread. So we'll sell our short call, or we'll close out of our short call and our long call that we bought back in January, and we'll buy a new one. The new one, our middle of the road will be 117, and our spread will be roughly 100 to 135. So what has this done for us? This has increased our cap and it has increased our floor for that portion of the portfolio. Our index just did this almost exact example at the end of August. The end of August, SPY for the holding period had gone to about 17% gain. On September 1st, we restruck SPY, got out of the original call spread, bought a new one. So that's another feature of our contract. This would never happen but you start adding these up and you do 10% a month for 15 months plus some extra, you could really get a very significant participation in the market. So it, it's fun stuff. It, it's, we've yeah. been really innovative. We have a lot of smart people that worked on this together with us. And, uh, and I think this can provide a lot of benefits to investors. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Michael McClary, the Chief Investment Officer of Valmark Financial Group, about this new index his team has built. Uh, it's sort of really interesting examples, Michael, as, as you mentioned, the, you know, the this dynamic uh, process of, 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 of trying to do these restrikes. 
Um, when when you think about the, we, we talked a little bit about in theory how you're looking at individual positions, and we talked early on about how you know the Valmark Group likes to look at things globally. Um, what is, as you built this index? I know it's not just U.S. Uh, talk about how you thought about the allocations, U.S. foreign, um, and and how you thought about what in, in building the global index. How, you know, because you have a global index and the U.S. index, but for the global index, how you thought about the allocations uh, within the different subsets there. So this is where my my role came became a big benefit, Jeremy, because I get to see what investors really need, and I get to see what advisors are actually utilizing and asking for. A lot of investment advisors and, and, and investors have their money in a globally diversified 70-30 portfolio. Okay, so they have some money in the U.S., they have some money in the international. If they used our, my ETF, I didn't want people to have to worry about, you know, significant changes to their underlying uh, equity exposure because they used our ETF. So if I was 100% U.S., you know, and they, and they have got a 70% U.S., 30% international in their other portion of their portfolio, this would be more of a U.S. bet than a risk management bet. So I didn't want to do that. Um, and I wanted to capture also what I believe in. I believe in diversification. Um, you know, our largest exposure is large cap U.S. equities in every one of my portfolios. So we do have a home country bias. Um, I think we're at about 50, if you take a global market cap, I think we're about 58% U.S. right now. Um, a few years ago, it was, you know, it was 48%, 48%, you know. So that's changed a lot. But, you know, if you were starting from scratch, you would put a significant slug in U.S. stocks. So I start out with 50% in SPY, which is the S&P 500. Also 50% SPY, 20% in the Russell 2000 IWM. So that's 70% in the U.S. And then we have 30% in international. 20% uh, of that is in developed, the EFA index, and 10% in EEM. So what you end up with is 70% U.S., 30% international, um, with a big slug of that in developed and large cap, and then you've got some emerging markets in small mid. So it's it's a we feel the most you know the, the best we can put together a nice low cost global mix for uh, for people. And what you can do with this portfolio, Jeremy, is if you have a, a normal investment portfolio of 70/30 with some global, you can just proportionally reduce your exposure to that and invest into this. So I see people taking 15 to 50 percent of their money reducing what they've got in the normal portfolio and allocating it to this. It's just that simple. You know, if you had 100% in your current allocation, you reduce that to 50, you take that 50%, you put it into this. That's, that's what we've seen people do. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, doing a, a call on how to think about using this type of target range uh, ETF, and and you know, and I, we were saying the sixty forty is the the seventy thirty or seventy five twenty five is the new sixty forty, and and you know, one of the ways you can think about this is this is a very clean way of if you're trying to go from sixty forty to seventy thirty, this is a way to add that ten percent and and do it, but in a risk controlled type of type of concept. Um, you know, in our final final few minutes, um, as, as you think about any other places. Or, or elements of the strategy you think that you, or the index concepts that, that you've built, um, anything that you would highlight on the indexes that we haven't covered so far? Um, so I look at different environments where I think this will do well, and I look at, you know, there, everything has plus and minuses, so you have to look at environments where it may not do as well. And fortunately, I think the timing here is very, very nice. Um, so throughout the year, um, the percentage that each position is away from its cap and its floor will vary. Uh, but currently, if you look at our position, we're right around the middle uh, because we've restructured that SPY uh, and then the other positions have kind of offset each other a bit. So it could be a good time if people want that 15% plus minus payoff until January. It could be a good time to think about GTR for that. Um, and then in January, we're going to restrike the whole thing again. So, so that's one thing that I would say is an aspect of this. Um, also, this is designed as you can do it as a shorter-term position, but also you, it's really predominantly designed as a buy-and-hold, that you would just take a percentage of your assets and just put it in this, and you could hold it for 20 years. So that was why we created some of the other features we don't have time to get into all the details of today. We created those features so that somebody could invest in this, Jeremy, and just hold it for 20 years. This is your new 70-30 portfolio or that allocation, okay? Now, what are the scenarios where this is going to do really well, and what are some ones where, uh, where it, might, it might be uh, pressed upon? One of which is equities outperform bonds. You're going to have a higher equity exposure, and you're going to be using equities as your gas completely. So that's, that's something that we do here is we, we're going to get you more into equities. Okay, that, that sh this should do well in that environment. This has been yep. great. We've got to thank, I think our producer 
Halloween birthday, Patty Hall, our, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, Michael McClary from Valmark CIO. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. It's been a great discussion. Have a great week, everybody. Because we talked about the Wisdom Tree Target Range Fund, ticker GTR, need to read a quick disclosure. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. To obtain a prospectus containing this and other important information, call 866-909-9473 or visit wisdomtree.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. There are risks associated with investing, including possible loss of principal. The fund is actively managed and implements a strategy similar to the methodology of the TOPS Global Equity Target Range Index, the index, which seeks to track the performance of a cash-secured call spread option strategy. There are no assurances that the index or the fund will achieve its respective investment objectives or that the fund will successfully implement its investment strategy. Moreover, while the fund seeks to target returns within a prescribed range, thereby minimizing downside investment loss, there can be no guarantee that investors in the fund will experience limited downside protection, particularly short-term investors, investors that seek to time the market, and or investors that invest over a period other than the annual period. The fund's option strategy will subject fund returns to an upside limitation on returns attributed to the assets underlying the options. The fund's investments in options may be subject to volatile swings in price influences by changed changes in the value of the underlying ETFs or other reference assets. The return on an options contract may not correlate with the return of its underlying reference asset. The fund may utilize flex options to carry out its investment strategy. Flex options may be less liquid than standard options, which may make it more difficult for the fund to close out of its flex option positions at desired times and prices. The fund's use of derivatives will give rise to leverage, and derivatives can be volatile and may be less liquid than other securities. As a result, the value of investment in the fund may change quickly and without warning, and you may lose money. Investment exposure to securities and investments traded in non-U.S., developing, or emerging markets can involve additional risks related to political, economic, regulatory conditions not associated with investments in U.S. securities and more developed international markets. These and other factors can make investments in the fund more volatile and potentially less liquid than other types of investments. Please read the fund's perspectives for specific details regarding the fund's risk profile. Wisdom Tree funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC, in the U.S. only. Foresight Fund Services, LLC, is not affiliated with the entities mentioned. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.